What's going on everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Unscripted, the show that brings you professionals from all walks of life, touching on their backstory, their mindset, and how they navigate through adversity and opposition, while providing you practical tips that might help you on your path. I'm your host, two-time Olympian, Olympic bronze medalist, author, and motivational speaker, Hakeem Haynes. Now, let's get into the episode. This week on the show, my guest is Tatiana Strayoff. She's a former professional circus artist, graduate of the world-renowned Ecole Nationale de Cirque, and founder of Creating Your Sunshine, which helps seniors improve their balance, maintaining their independence, living life each day with better health and greater joy she also is a speaker she goes to schools organizations sports teams and corporate settings to share her story with an added twist in how she engages with her audience i met tatiana a few years ago before the pandemic and when we met she told me her story some of the things that she's had to fight through and overcome her story isn't just an inspiring one. It's not just inspiring to hear, but after hearing it, man, I had a lot of questions because I was trying to understand where she was getting her mental strength and internal joy from. One moment she was about to finally accomplish a dream of hers that she's had since she was a young girl. And the next moment she was in the hospital and diagnosed with a rare bone disease mixed with another illness that left her bedridden for the next six years, trying to figure out what was going on inside and how do we get better from it. A powerful, powerful, touching story. In this episode, we get into how her and her family settled down to Calgary, Alberta, how watching a Cirque du Soleil event inspired her to want to be a part of it, we talk about how she self-taught herself the basics of movement and balance, how she blocks out negative voices, the audition process to get into a coal national dessert in Montreal, Quebec. We talk about what it was like moving to a new city and learning a new language and trying to balance it all. We talk about why it was tough for her to balance everything at the beginning. We talk about how she handles doubts and fears, insecurities, and the fears of failure. We talk about the diagnosis that pushed that dream aside. We talk about the impact of the rare bone disease that she healed from, and another condition was revealed that led her to being bedridden. We talk about how she stayed encouraged and positive through it all, and we talk about why she chose to turn her hardships into discovering a new perspective and forming a bigger dream and so much more. This is an episode you are truly going to enjoy, man. Tatiana's story again, isn't just inspiring, it's powerful, but above all, it's a story of hope. Man, hope is something that we always need more of. But before we go, if you're enjoying the episode, do me a favor, leave a rating and review of the show, share this episode with a friend, let us know what you're getting from it, let me know what you are getting from it. So with all that being said, enjoy this week's episode with Tatiana Strayoff. I always like to start the podcast the same way, especially in this season. And I think I may actually 
ask a different question. I'm going to ask you because I didn't, we're talking a little bit before off air, just, you know, about nothing really, but how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so honored to be on the show with you today, Akeem. I've enjoyed watching a lot of your other episodes and you're, you're someone that I'm so inspired by as well. So it's a real honor today, and I'm cozy inside. We had a big snowfall the other day here in Calgary. <laughs> I'm sure you're happy to not be in Calgary now. It's funny, you know, Calgary is, um, Canada's my adopted country. You know, obviously I was born in Jamaica, but I came to Canada, then I went to Yellowknife, uh, grew up in Calgary. So I remember those times, man. Like I tell people about Calgary, it's like, it can be cold, one day and the next day it can be sunny. Like it's, it's kind of crazy, but <laughs> you're from Calgary. What do you remember most about those young early years for you growing up? Were you into sports? Was, I know family's a big part of your journey, but were they, yeah, strict parents? Like what, what do you remember <laughs> about those young years growing up in Calgary for you? Well, interestingly, um, I actually didn't come to Calgary until I was about 10 years old. Okay. So yeah, and not too many people know this, so I'll share. Um, I was born in Germany in a very small town there that whenever I say the name, I think a lot of people think I've made it up because they say they've never heard of it. But we spent probably the first two and a half years of my life there, and then we moved to England. Okay. Lived there for another three years. Then Vancouver, three years. You're noticing the trend oh, here. Yes, but three. <laughs> Calgary, Calgary's where that stopped because... I've been in, in Calgary, or my family at least has been based here since I was about 10 years old. And um, I'd say the moving in those early years definitely had an effect on me. It was always an adventure and especially a bit of a culture shock to in each new place. But like you said before, your family was a big part of it for me. And wherever we went, I knew that I had my family as friends. So that's my parents and I've got an older brother. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I always enjoyed having that aspect wherever I went, knowing that we were a unit together. Um, but Calgary is mostly what I remember in terms of, of my childhood growing up. And my parents were not strict, but um, always encouraging. Yeah. So they always supported my brother and I through whatever we wanted to do. And probably one of the biggest things that I, when I think of my parents or when I'm telling other people about them, is that they always encouraged us to question things and to not just follow what everybody mm. else is doing. And I think they've both followed that in their own life paths, which have been quite different. But I think about that whenever I'm having to make a decision or, or choosing what to do, I think of my parents reminding us to really listen to our heart and trust our intuition. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the name of the place in Germany? I spent some time over there. Um, it's called uh, Both Hamburg, and I've probably okay, pronounced yeah. it Never incorrectly heard of that. as Never well. Never heard of that one, Tatiana. <laughs> yes, and everybody asks me, they say, oh, do you mean Hamburg? <laughs> and, uh. <I> say, no. <laughs> um, and, and maybe it's that I've got the pronunciation incorrect, and once I learned that, uh, somebody will recognize it. But I did have some confirmation from someone a few weeks ago who's from Germany, lives in Calgary now. They went back there, and they were doing a road trip. They said that they took a picture of the sign for me because they passed this small town. Okay, so, so they need, found I need to it. get that picture. <laughs> there, th there is confirmation. You talked about mm -hmm. just a little bit about moving to a bunch of different places when you were young and threes. Did you 
Did you expect to move when you got to Calgary? I mean, it was kind of like a theme for a little bit there. Or were you just kind of excited to, I guess, be stable a little bit in that in that regard? I didn't know at the time that we would be staying here. And that move in particular was really difficult. I was at the point when we left Vancouver where uh, I had a great group of friends. I liked the school that I was at. And uh, at the time, I was actually running. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll, we'll touch upon later. Um, I had a track team there. And so I didn't expect that we would be moving. And it was quite rocky when I started here. Trouble making friends. I had some bullying as well. And it wasn't until a few years into Calgary where I started to get settled. And even then, I had a number of personal challenges to work through, too. But you know, I really do think of Calgary as my home now, and especially with my family being here for so long. It's wherever they are, that's the home for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of talked about, wow, thanks for sharing that. I didn't know about that. You talked about some of the, the personal struggles. You know, like moving to a different place is kind of tough. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. and, and especially as you're young, because, you know, the world is a, the world is a tough place as it is. And I remember when I came to Canada, like I struggled because I was speaking English, but Patois is broken English. So, you know, teachers were giving me a hard time for a little bit and, and the kids weren't understanding me a little bit. So it could be tough to kind of mm-hmm. learn and see how things operate. And when people don't understand, they kind of treat you differently. Right. Yes. What, what what were some of those challenges that you were finding during those times? Because man, it's 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 tough being a young person growing up in this world nowadays where everything is it's a scroll or a click away. It can be challenging. Yes, and probably for a uh, good reason we didn't have those back then. I didn't have a cell phone. I don't think I had an email back then before. <laughs> So in terms of keeping in touch, there were letters or phone calls, and I did keep in touch with a few friends through phone calls, but even that was was difficult at the time. And uh, adjusting into a school where a lot of uh, friend groups were already made, Um, and and when you're at that age, I think 10, 11 years old, too, there's there's just a lot of challenges that come with that. And it's, it's taken me a while to find my Place. I was always looking to try and belong, and I'd say after I left Vancouver, that's where I really struggled with belonging, and then continued to struggle with that throughout my life. And um, it wasn't until more recent years where I, I realized that I can go anywhere now because I've made mm-hmm. friends with myself, and um, I've gotten to, to know myself on a deeper level. And so it doesn't matter who I'm with; I'll always be able to find points of connection and not feel this real need to try and fit in and, and to change myself in order to do that. Wow. And we're going to talk about that, that, that journey, how you got there, of course. But I was, you know, it, as I was getting ready for this, Tatiana, I was just like, man, you know, it, it, we have to talk about how you got into the, the, the circus and, and what you see in that regard. But I remember when I first came to Canada, Tatiana, I saw this um, movie. It was called... It wasn't, sorry, it wasn't a movie. It was like a very short film. It was like Red's, Red's Dream, I believe it was. It was made in like 1987. Oh. 
and four minute clip, right? It was about this clown and he was doing tricks on a unicycle and it was beautifully like the, the, the like it, how the, like the setup was immaculate, right? Like it was a black shadow in the room. He was on the bike. He was doing all these tricks and then the bike was moving and then he wasn't on the bike anymore, right? Because you're focused on the bike and then all of a sudden he switches it here. And I'm just like, well, like this is crazy, but it never came in my mind as to like, how does someone even get into that? Is this even real? It's a show. It's a movie. I mean, you know, Dumbo was made in the 1940s, <laughs> but you didn't really think that that was a thing. So for you as a, like, how did you get into that space? Like, how did you, did it ever cross your mind to say, man, this, this is something that I could pursue here. I don't know how, <laughs> but this is pretty cool. When was those earliest thoughts for you? Well, first of all, I'm getting to watch this movie now because I haven't seen it. It sounds enchanting, very magical. It's like uh, four yes. minutes. It's short. <laughs> oh, wow. Then you can watch it a number of times exactly. and really notice all the elements and details. I know you, you don't hear of it that often when, when somebody has run away with the circus. I think it seems like this another world, really. Um, for me, it started actually here in Calgary, and I think that's why... I look back now at those early years of struggle here, and I think that mm. it's all meant to be to lead me to what I felt at the time I was meant to do. My parents took me to see my very first circus show. It was the Cirque du Soleil Alegria that came. I don't even remember what year that would have been now. And it was my first experience to circus. I'd never seen anything like that before. Mm -hmm. And my parents remember that I was sitting in my seat and, and twisting as I was watching this. I had never seen anything like it. And for the first time in my life, I really started to believe that anything was possible. Wow. That the body and mind were limitless. Mm. And from that night, it planted this, this dream in my head. And I think looking back now, I, I wonder what I was thinking because I had no experience, no dance or gymnastics background. And from that night, I just knew that somehow I, I would make it to the circus. And so that dream did, wouldn't even seem tangible until years later. So how did you touch that, right? Because you talked about you had no experience. Like it wasn't, you know, like track and field, football, basketball, stuff I used to play is pretty simple. I mean, I mean to 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 play basketball, the, the ball goes in the net, right? You got a basketball, you go in the net, you run, you dribble, you learn tricks. But how does someone get into that how do you make it tangible did you start doing specific things to kind of prepare for it like looking at gymnastics or you know taking uh ballet like how did those impossible things become possible from an intangible standpoint well uh, there weren't many circus resources at the time in calgary there were some things here and there and, I, and i'm grateful that there were that because it gave me some ideas of, of what was possible to do yeah. And uh, even, even when I started, though, it, it was not something that I had a natural gift for. I was training up until this point as a sprinter. That was actually my original dream was to go to the Olympics for the 4x100 or the 100-meter sprint. So mm -hmm. talking to you today really feels like it's coming full circle because I You I had some speed you. training, though. <laughs> I did, yeah. And that really does not translate. Into, into anything that I was doing, you know, normally sprinters will go into something that makes sense, like bobsled or, or really any other sport. But in terms of flexibility and balancing on your hands, that Not is in a, 
realm of its own. And so um, I remember going to a small circus school that was here and I, you know, I just didn't have that natural aptitude and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I loved seeing the contortionist in the circus yes. show, but I wasn't naturally flexible the way some people are born, like a rubber band and they discover yeah. that they're meant to be in the circus was something I had to work very hard for. And uh, I'm proud of myself now for not giving up because I was told by a lot of people that, uh, you know, that it wasn't possible for me to do this or that I was starting too late. I didn't know how to point my toes, which is now I know that's basically like breathing in circus. It was always thinking about that, having that long line and pointed toes. But I gathered pieces of information and training and advice and started to put it together. And I trained every day in my basement uh, at home. Wow. And it grew from doing a little bit here and there, maybe a few minutes to eventually in my last few years of high school, I was getting up early, training an hour or two before school. And then I'd come home and I would do another two, sometimes three hours. And I didn't know exactly what I was doing, but I had enough that I knew the positions I wanted to achieve. I was starting to figure out how to get there. And I think the beautiful thing when you were learning very much on your own is that you make mistakes. And you learn from them and you really start to figure out how position works and how your body works. And I'm happy now that I went through that challenge because when I'm teaching other people, I'm able to relate to so many things because it wasn't just taught to me. I really mm. had that lived and learned experience. In those basement mornings and nights, what <laughs> what were you doing? Like, what did that look like? Because the, the solitude can be a great thing, Tatiana, but it can also work against you because, yeah, you have time to think and to figure it out. But mm -hmm. when you also don't have that encouragement or someone saying, hey, that was nice. You didn't, you don't know the feedback with the critique. Yes. Like I, so what were you doing to get yourself prepared? You, you, were you pointing your toes for three hours? Like, were you doing backflips? <laughs> like, what type of things were you doing and how were you finding this information? Because we're talking about the dream, right? And people always make it seem like the dream is so tangible, but everybody's journey is a little bit different doesn't mean you can't make it happen, but there's other things that you need if you don't have the same start. Like we all don't as many others. So what were you doing during those times to get yourself prepared for what you did not know was looking right, so to speak? I had a little digital camera. And so when I was starting to work on some flexibility positions and then later on handstands, I filmed myself and I tried to look for points that people had given me. Um, I knew that for handstands, your body had to be in a certain alignment with the shoulders in the right place. The hips have to be perfectly in place as well. And I started to figure out just really by falling each time. Mm. And then I would try it again. I'd watch the video and I'd see why did I fall? Was it because my toes were too far over? Was it my, my hips were too closed? And I learned through doing that video analysis. And, wow. um, I would train mostly in silence until I got a CD player. And I remember one CD in particular. CD uh, player. <laughs> do you know Angelique Kijo? No, I do uh, not. No. Oh, she's a fantastic singer, musician, just such um, joyful, upbeat yeah. music. And so I play this CD over and over again while I was training. You can imagine you know, five hours of training. That's a lot of listens. So when yes. I do that CD or her music again now, it's like, 
it all comes back to me. Um, but I, I would watch the video. I had the VHS. This is really aging me now. <laughs> a VHS tape of Alegria, the show that I had first seen. And I would watch that one that inspired me so much. It's over and over wow. again. And I visualize myself being in that place one day, even the way she entered onto the stage was so beautiful with so much intention. The way you talk about um, Red Stream, I believe it was called. Yeah. You know, four minutes and just every single movement was beautiful to watch. Wow. Uh, that kept that, that dream alive even through. I, I had injuries. I had uh, all kinds of things during those, uh, those trainings at home. It is very easy to get caught up in the noise, um, uh, the noise of, 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 of both you and other people. You know, I think, I think it's important to believe in yourself, absolutely, but it's also important not to believe everything that you think, because we are both positive and negative, depending on the situation. But yes. you talked about, you know, putting in all these hours in and people didn't believe, right? And when people don't believe, they... They say things and they may not realize the weight that it holds. And I think uh, from a motivation standpoint, like fear can be a great factor. Uh, trying to prove people wrong can be a motivating factor, but it doesn't really last for too long. What were people saying about you, Tatian, and how did you block that out and continue showing up in that basement? Well, the great thing in a way about training on my own was that um, I was just up here all the time. And it wasn't always a positive place, like you said, but um, I'd write down my goals and my dreams. I had a sheet of paper. And I knew that from my early years in sprinting and what I'd learned about sports psychology, which I had an interest in already um, at an early age, and I knew that your mind is one of the strongest parts of your body. And so if I was going to achieve any of the things that I wanted to, I needed to really believe in that. And, and just as you, you touched upon, having some people say that's not possible or you're not good at this, sometimes that can be a fuel. And it was for me, I remember one position, a strength move that I wanted to do. And um, somebody told me that I was learning too late and that most mm. likely wouldn't be able to do it, or that my core and leg muscles were extremely weak. And at first I was um, offended by that, but then I thought, you know what, let's use this as an opportunity to get myself stronger. And uh, it's such an amazing feeling when I think that one move, it took about a year for me to learn it, and I'd practice it everywhere lunch break at school wow. find a little empty space in a room where no one was there i'd practice i'd come home i practice it all the time and when i finally got up into that position then it's like the size of the limit because i had just achieved one and then it was five and then it was ten and then i put ankle weights on and just opened up mm. so many possibilities for me it was more than just that move it was me realizing that despite what other people say I can still get there. I can wow. create my own way of getting there. I might not be able to follow their their plan or their timeline, but in some way I'll achieve it. Wow, wow, wow. That's powerful stuff. Like it made me think about like one of my family members, I overheard them saying something about, you know, the the possibility of certain things. And, you know, like 
going to college and not having to pay for it, right? And certain things. And when I heard them say this thing, like, man, back then you 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 know, the 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 young mind is always optimistic and always wants to prove something, but you get a little bit older and you're just like, wow, like that that actually kind of hurt a little bit. And certain mm-hmm. things that you push aside, right? And you just put it down and put it down, but then it does come back up. What was the hardest part about those times in the isolation, Tatiana? Definitely the hardest part was the trainings that didn't go well, which you would know all about. <laughs> yes. It's not always good days. Um, I, I think in, in track and field, it's it's very clear to explain to people that sometimes you're working years to get a quarter, a fraction of a second, milliseconds. And it's very much the same for me. It would take so long to achieve certain moves, whether that was strength or flexibility. And oftentimes it was going backwards and then questioning what I'm doing. If I'm doing the right thing, is this even possible? Where am I going to go from here? Yeah. And, and then injuries. I did have some significant ones. Uh, it was all during my high school years. And one of those injuries, though, uh, I look back as uh, sort of a blessing in disguise because it really pivoted all my attention to surface. I was still running track at the time. And this was when I was about 14 or 15. I was moving to a new high school and everything happened at once. I uh, tore my hamstring muscle. Mm-hmm. Just started surface, started getting serious about it. Started the new high school um, at a school where people had been there for many years. So they're already friends. I was coming in new and uh, their groups set up. And I couldn't sit properly on a chair because of my hamstring. So I had to have an exercise ball. <laughs> the only one in a in classroom or grade 10s that was on an exercise ball or stuff a cushion. And uh, that, that year was so difficult because for the first time in what had been many years, I couldn't exercise. And that lasted about probably eight or nine months. I really could not, I couldn't run. I could barely stretch. I felt like I was losing everything that I had worked so hard for. I didn't know if it was still possible to follow my dream and what I wanted to do. But uh, I did come back from that. And I learned so much about my body during that time, how to take care of it better, how to prevent a strain or a a tear like that in the future. But that time made me realize how much I love circus and I wanted to pursue that. And so that was was the end of, of track and field for me. But the beginning of uh, of something new and a real focus on on the surface. You know, as we get into your story a little bit more, like, and I hope I remember this thought when we get to a s- certain point. But it's like, man, I don't mind you. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, man, Tatiana, like, in a small way, like, what you kind of went through at the beginning prepared you for what was to come in the future. Like, you said you didn't train for like nine months. You didn't really do much, and it's like, man, like. But let me remember that thought before we get to the next thought. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so going all in, right? You 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 make the move to Quebec to go to one of the world uh renowned circus places. But how does one get to that school? Like wh- like how did that happen for you? Because you know, like was there scholarships? Was it did you have to pay a flat fee? Cuz you know in in certain sports it's like 
you know, uh, you run a certain time in track and field, there's a good chance you're going to get looked at by schools down south, schools in Canada, same kind of with football. and similar. Like, There's intangible things that you can do. But to go to a place that is world renowned when you were kind of doing it on your own, like that's remarkable. So like, how, how did that you. happen? How did you get there? And no, nobody's looking for you there. Uh, I think there are some scholarships, but there are scouts for the school that are looking and saying you should come out. And then of course, yes, me, me training at home <laughs> and back then there, there wasn't social media or maybe it was just at the beginning of that, but I had seen this school in a magazine and I probably still have that magazine somewhere. I'd every night I'd flip through it and I'd look at these pictures of the graduates from there. It's mm-hmm. a very small class. They graduate about 20, between 21 to 26 students wow. every year from around the world. And there'll usually only be one person per discipline. Um, so wow. the audition process, I'm so grateful I don't have to do that again. Um, I sent in application papers. This was to be invited to come to the audition in Montreal. And they also do an audition in Vancouver, I believe, Toronto, Paris, and Buenos Aires. Those are smaller. And for some reason, I decided that I needed to do it in Montreal and subject myself to the most stressful experience. So you send an application with pictures and some descriptions about your training. And from there, uh, for the Montreal audition, I think they accept about just under 300. I hope I'm getting the numbers uh, correct, but around that number to come and actually attend what's a four-day audition in Montreal. Wow. These are long days. Uh, the first day was probably 16 hours. 16 hours? Yes. Oh, no. Oh, and no. a lot of it is waiting and trying to stay warm. And that's the hardest part because you see everybody around you that's mm-hmm. warming up and you're constantly comparing yourself because of it mm. being an audition setting. So you're trying to rank yourself and see where you fit in. And I remember that day as I was warming up, we were in such a tight space and somebody was doing repeated backflips over top of me <laughs> as I was stretching. And he ended up becoming a great friend later on. <laughs> but I was I was so out of my comfort zone because I, I trained by myself at home. I wasn't used to being around other people. And we put numbers on our front and back. So we were really just a number. There weren't names they'd call your number to go up and, and do a certain move or strength testing. Well, wow. Out of the four days, um, there would be cuts at the end of each day. So the first day, we found out about cuts around 11.30 at night. They just pull a big screen into the room and they flash one by one the numbers. And just because my, my number was towards the end, and seeing the faces and the tears of people who didn't make oh. it. And there were, oh. there were students who had come from uh, the other side of the world who had trained so hard to get here, who had even come for a second time to try and make it. And they were being caught on the first day. And you don't even get to show your act that you've prepared on the first day. The first day is really just the basics. They want to see you strength testing, flexibility, coordination, your movement. They want to see how you can handle stress as well and your interactions with other people. So you have to consider you're being watched this entire time. And they, they, they made cuts every single day until the last day. And there are about 67 of us left 
on that last day. And wow. then we all went home feeling relieved to have made it to the end. But we all knew that over the next 30 days, the judges would be making more cuts. And we couldn't even expect that it would be 25 of us that they would choose from that group because they'd be taking from the Paris, Buenos Aires, Toronto, Vancouver auditions as well. So waiting mm. for that letter, uh, I was checking the mail and the email every day. And then when that letter finally arrived and it was on April Fool's Day. Of course, why, why not, am- right? <laughs> I'd imagine what that day would feel like. And I remember just sitting in front of the computer ready to open this email. And there was nothing from the subject line that would indicate a yes or a no. But I was terrified to open the email because I had kept this possibility in my mind alive for many years now. And finally, there would be an answer. Mm. It was was a yes. And I kept that letter and I slept with it underneath my pillow. Wow. Many, many months just to remind myself that I wasn't dreaming. I'd read the letter again in the morning because it did feel surreal. And I kept thinking, why me out of everybody else that was there? Everyone was talented to get to that level. And so I realize now, and I'm sure you've realized this in sport as well, um, there's the work ethic and the talent, and the, the natural gifts. But then there's an element of luck and being in the right place at the right time and being what somebody's looking for that moment and um that i guess was was me during that time and, and that led to four four years in montreal um equally as stressful i would say as the audition at many times there were just a whole new set of challenges because even when you're there uh, you have to prove to, to them to the school and to the coaches that you deserve to be there every single day in the beginning, Tatiana, you said there were some parts of your um, childhood and growing up a little bit where, you know, you kind of were struggling with things inside a little bit. Um, I think self-worth is one of the toughest things to to battle with sometimes because it mm-hmm. is your self-worth. But so much of us is external first, like the interactions and stuff. So it can be hard, especially if you aren't not every child is hearing from their parents or others that hey like you can be great like you can be good at whatever you do it it always sounds great but you don't always see it what did that feel for you when you got that right you're accepted in the school did did your what was your self-worth like during that time did you feel accepted or was there that thing in the back of your head that said man i could lose this tomorrow if i don't perform well (laughs) I, I always had that. And I, I realized now looking back from a very early age, probably f- since I was five, uh, I was always very stressed, very anxious. I had stomach aches from an early age and the mm. doctor chalked it up to stress. But I always had support. Um, I had parents that believed in me and that were so encouraging. So I don't know exactly where the struggles with self-worth from it could have been from moving it could have been from bullying so many different things it could have just come from inside always wanting to do my best and feeling like i was never quite measuring up but i think for circus i felt that i started late i didn't have professional training before i went to montreal and that stayed as the chip on my shoulder the whole time i was there i felt that i needed to work harder 
than everybody else and be the first person there and the last person to leave to try and catch up. What I felt were my, my weaknesses. That's all I was ever looking at. How to strengthen those trouble seeing my strengths or even realizing uh, that some of what I perceived were weaknesses were in fact strengths. They just wouldn't reveal themselves till later on. Yeah. And um, when I did get this letter, of course, there was this joy and uh, you know, probably like, like you experienced when you found out you're going to the Olympics. Like, this is what I've been waiting for, what I've trained for. And then as soon as I got there every day, uh, I, I had anxiety every single morning before I'd go to train and I'd be awake woke up pretty early for training at 5 a.m. Every single morning I'd turn on my phone and there'd be a message of encouragement from my mom. Wow. Never missed a day. Wow. Every single day she made sure that that message was there for me in the morning. Wow, my dad beautiful. would remind myself that this was my dream because I can't tell you the number of times that I, I wanted to come home. I was so homesick. I was learning a new language and my coach she didn't speak much French or English, just Russian. So I know a few, <laughs> a few words tough. in Russian as well. And we had to figure out a different way of, of communicating. But I was also living by myself, um, dealing with small injuries and aches and pains, trying to learn my body as I, as I was aging and, and adjusting to a new level of training and intensity. And then uh, dealing with body image issues too, as part of that. So it's... I think a lot of people don't realize when they're looking at somebody who in their mind has made it or is at this very high level, they don't understand what might be going through their mind or the self-doubt that they could have. And in some ways, it's it's hard when you're up here because you feel like you should have it all together. For me on the track, like the the there's a whole bunch of ways to diff, to, to to handle pressure. And I think it's one thing that, that uh, will often creep up inside of us. Um, through our bodies and we always have warnings. You know, I like, like for me on the track, my thing was always, man, I, I'm going to train, especially in the base season before competition, I'm going to train twice as hard. I'm going to lift twice as heavy. I'm going to literally try to break my body down so that when mm -hmm. the season does start, man, this is, this is not going to be as tough as it should, right? But for me, I was always in the mental space of, man, I just got to prepare, 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 prepare. So I dealt with physical pressure, actually probably pretty good. It was the mental pressure um, away from sport, right? Because then I was like, man, because, you know, A plus B needs to equal C. If I don't run this time, I'm not going to, you know, make this amount of money or I'm not going to get this. So the mental aspect of things, of sports, it's not healthy. Like, like it's like. It's not so from a from a from a it's not healthy if you don't have certain things to combat it. Let me say that. Um yes. uh from a a a timeline standpoint, Tatiana, like you got up at 5 a.m. Uh what did that day look like? What time were you finishing? What like were, there's so many different acts. What were you working on? What was a typical day look like for you? So a typical day, and I'll describe one of my favorite days, was usually Monday or Tuesday because I'd be really fresh coming out of the weekend and excited for the week ahead, covered in with a lot of anxiety what that week would look like. But most mornings I'd start with handstands, and okay. I love that because uh, for me, handstands are very meditative. And this was my, my core 
discipline as well. This is my specialty, what I got into the school for. And so I'd spend a few hours just looking at my hands every mm. day. And it gave me a lot of time to be in my head. But with the help of yoga and meditation, I learned how to make that a better place for me. And I love that quiet start to the morning. I won't say gentle because the types of conditioning that we were doing at 8.30 in the morning. But I would always get there before everybody else. I think I was usually the first one there mm -hmm. at the school. So the lights would still be off. And that was my favorite part. Uh, we have a big training area. It's called the Chapiteau, which in French, um, it describes the circus tent. They call it the Grand Chapiteau. And that's where everybody's inside the ring. And that's where I train every morning. But the lights would be off. And there was one inspirational piece of music that I'd listen to. Every morning I'd lie on the floor wow. and I'd just visualize what the day could look like and my dreams going forward. And that was time when I felt I could really relax because the rest of the day you're always being watched and there's all the levels of the building that look down on this training area. So all the rooms have glass. And yeah. You always have to be at your best. You always have to be on and ready. And so that morning was, was time for me. And then we'd start training after homestands. And, and there's usually 15, 20 minute breaks in between. Uh, we'd have conditioning, um, flexibility class, so active and, and so flexibility. Then there would be lunchtime, which was always difficult because I knew I had acrobatics and other Couldn't classes really after. Eat. <laughs> Couldn't really eat. Learned that the hard way sometimes. So it was always little snacks here and there. And trying to find a bit of quiet time for myself as somebody who really needs that. I try to find places where I can take some moments to reflect or to have a little cat nap or to read, just to do something where I don't have to be interacting with other people. Yeah. The afternoons would often look like acrobatics. A few times a week we have a dance class, which is a combination of learning some ballet. Um, contemporary movements, just learning how to move our body. We did actually have a movement class as well, which I love because dance wasn't very comfortable for me. I'm not fast at learning choreography, but movement class was just about getting out there and moving your body in whatever way feels right to you. So you're connected inside versus with dance. I'm looking at a mirror. I'm trying to follow what the teacher is doing. And then I would do a lot of my own extra training, uh, which mm. for me was mainly conditioning. I was always trying to get stronger for various reasons. Um, I think because I've always been told I'm a very gentle person. And so working on my physical strength was a way of me feeling like I was stronger and able to handle things when people told me that I was too gentle or too sensitive. So mm -hmm. it was like a physical, physical armor. Wow. I would always be in the conditioning room doing those things. And then the evening, uh, we'd have academic classes most nights or circus history, learning about um, even clown history, which is fascinating. A lot of people don't know that. Learning how to manage your career, um, learning lighting, learning how to create an act, which is so many pieces coming together. So I do actually have um, my, my bachelor's as well. It's a bachelor of circus arts because I do have that academic component with all the training on top of it. And wow. that's what a, a typical day would look like. And then I would get home, which sometimes was biking in the snow in Montreal winters, and then quickly getting ready to do that all again the next day. 
and 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 trying to be optimistic about it all at the same time. Uh, yes, Tatiana, I watched a few of your performances. Uh, uh, one, you were on a bicycle on a rope. I was like, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> the other one, uh, you were talking. It was when you were balancing, and it's funny, like whomever was talking about <laughs> your 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 body not being able to handle positions and not strength like that's crazy they've obviously never watched because the the core strength and some of the stuff that you're doing is just crazy but it's not just a performance that i was watching personally i felt like it was an expression of a lot of different mm -hmm. things whether it was pain whether it was fear whether it was doubt but it was also confidence and belief as well too when you're performing what what does that feel like where does your mind go um, and like, how does your body feel post performance? Like, are you sore? <laughs> I think the performance mode will be able to relate in many ways for this. I'm not sure what it was like for you before performance, but any performance that I did and now, even when I do an interview or when I'm speaking, I'm always so nervous before I do all kinds of things to just calm, quiet down my body. But when I'm on stage, it's like I go into a whole new world. Yeah. Yeah. I really learned how to create that with handstands. I managed to choose one of the most difficult disciplines to perform because other disciplines in circus, the, the adrenaline and that sort of anxiety slash excitement, those butterflies that you get before you go on stage, they're helpful. It makes you run faster or stretch a little further than you have but for handstands it's about finding this calm zen state in your mind where you're just you're perfectly even and that's really difficult to find when you've got pressure when you've got a whole audience of people watching you mm -hmm. too if if you're shaking a little bit um that's going to affect your balance and so i had to learn how to channel that when i went on stage and part of that was having confidence in myself even when just a few minutes ago, I didn't have that. And I'd take a, uh, usually when I got on stage, the lights would always be down. And so I'd do a couple breathing exercises, visualize it in my mind. And as soon as the lights went on, I knew that I had to be fully present. No more thoughts, no more thinking about anything else that was going on. Mm -hmm. And um, there would always be one or two moves that I, I wouldn't be sure if I'd be able to make it. Or there's a fly in here that has been in the house the entire week. <laughs> It's family so now. So I apologize for the distinction. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I mean, in performance too, there'd always be something that would be a distraction, whether it was the lights or someone in the audience or um, sometimes the floor wouldn't be completely even. So oh. now you're not just dealing with your balance, but if, if your uh, platform wasn't perfectly placed, you'd have this wobble on top of your own, your own wow. balance. So you learn how to handle everything. But um, there'd be a number of moves that I wouldn't be sure if I'd be able to fully do in the performance. And I recall one in particular every single time I think, oh, am I going to make it up? And this one, it would be so obvious if I would fall or if I wouldn't be able to make it up too. So I really just use that as strength each mm -hmm. time as I was going on stage and know that if I fell, I would need to improv and turn it into something, something new. And some of those performances that I would consider my worst performances actually turned out to be the most transformative for me because mm. I'd fall maybe three, four times that has happened. Getting the confidence to keep going was hard. 
But afterwards, when I'd watched the video, and I'd never look forward to this, even when I had a good performance, but a bad performance in particular, I'd go back and it'd be really interesting to see how I would save the performance, and how mm. I would have to create a movement sequence to then get back up on top of my cane so I can do handstand. And I've often taken those combinations and put them into a new act because they they were created in the moment with the energy of the audience and you don't get that from a rehearsal when you're just on your own. Yeah, that's, that's pressure. Like at least in track and field, like you're running straight and then you can kind of go away. Right. But like people are lich, like you are the show, like they're watching you. So like, I can't imagine what it, what it, what it, what it takes to not only handle that physically, but mentally. Right. Because yes. I, I, I hate being late for class because everybody watches you. So I couldn't mm. imagine. I'm the same. <laughs> so, you know, so I give all hats off to you in that. Um, we graduate, right? Finally, everything is, you know, all of the, the things you had to go through sacrifices paid off. What did that feel like when you graduated? And what were your thoughts as to what was next? I was excited to graduate. The last year especially had just been such a long haul. And we work very much in an Olympic cycle because it's four years. We prepare for one single performance at the end. And everything needs to be flawless for that so by year four, you're, you're tired. You're really tired. You're trying to keep your body together with injuries, which I, I did have things here and there. The biggest thing for me, though, was already in my second year, I started to have some, some health issues, which we'll touch upon later. But I was always able to figure out a way to keep training. The biggest mm. thing for me was that um, I, I think it was in my second year, uh, at the end, I just I started gaining some weight. To other people might not sound a lot, like a lot, it was 15 pounds. But for me, when you're lifting your entire body, yeah. that is everything. And it was the sort of precursor to me learning that I had a lot more wrong with my body that was going on inside. But that weight gain and struggling with body image issues was so difficult. So by the time I graduated, I kept thinking, about, you know, now that I finally completed this and I'll be moving to more performance, less training, just maintenance and then performance once a day, my body will finally have a chance to settle and everything will go back to normal. So I did this, this last performance, which is I think the one that you saw uh, in the blue costume. Mm -hmm. I didn't know at the time that that was going to be one of my last performances, at least up until this point now where I am. Um, but I had a dream job in Europe and Everybody starts getting jobs during the year. Everybody did get something, but okay. when somebody gets something, we don't have anything yet secured or lined up. I didn't know what I'd be doing until a few months before. So that was hard too, because I worked so hard. I still have doubts, but I know that I've reached a level where I would be able to be in a number of different shows or with different circus troops. And so when I finally had that, felt that I could start planning for the future and I was prepared to move to Europe, to Switzerland. And this tour was actually very traditional. We each have our own caravan. Mm. It's very much like the traditional circus that I had dreamed about, fantasized about when I was starting circus. 
because it's not done like that anymore. There's circus in theaters and arenas, but there's something about the circus tent that is so magical. And to have that experience coming right out of school would be very important and special to me. And I was getting all ready to go and packed up all my belongings, my equipment here. And then 24 hours before I got on the plane to Europe, I was diagnosed with a very rare bone disease. And that day is kind of a blur. I just remember sitting in the parking lot of the doctor's office and I was completely in shock. But I also still had this part of me that thought, um, you know, in six weeks, I might be able to join, join the show. I'll still be going. I'll get through this. I'd never taken more than two days off of training at that point. And they um, had a cast on my mattress. For, they said it would be the next six weeks, just as a starter. I didn't learn until later it was going to be a full year that I wouldn't be able to use that right arm. But I was so optimistic still at that point and trying to figure out in my mind how this would still work. And little did I know that that was just the beginning of, of what was to come. Yeah, it's that, you know, it's that, it's, that, it's that athlete mentality in you, right? Where it's like, yeah, this is, I recover from this. I no problem. <laughs> I'm saying you've been doing it for yes. so long. It becomes routine, but then things get a little bit more serious. You talked about the rare bone disease. When did it hit you that, yeah, I don't think I'm actually going to be able to go over to Europe and you had to kind of sit in that? Was it something that happened right away? Was it something that progressed over time? Or what was that like when that realization came, okay, there is something bigger here and I have to take this part a little bit more serious. It was pretty soon after um, I remember getting an email three or four weeks after I had this diagnosis and I moved home to Calgary yeah. time so my parents could look after me and I could begin treatments and I still had in my mind that I might be able to join this tour and I got a message and it was it was very nice but the team was saying that they had to find a replacement. And, uh, they they found somebody, and so I knew then that that I wouldn't be part of this. Mm-hmm. In a way, it also just took the pressure off because I thought I don't have anything right now to go back to, and so I can really focus on the treatment and take as long as I need. But it was still my dream to go back to something, and I kept thinking with each day that passed how much i was losing with yeah. handstands especially even when you take a few days off your balance you have to recenter yourself it's um it's very difficult to take any time off so even when i'd have rest days i'd always do at least one handstand during the day just to feel that balance and just to train all the right muscles to still stay active so as the days went on i it's it's going to be hard going to be hard to come back. Those, those, those next few years, Tatiana, were, were, were probably, you know, I never, I never want to assume, but probably some of the toughest years mm-hmm. of your life. Um, yes. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing for me to kind of say, but um, I'd love if you could walk us through those times because, you know, there, there, there are things in our lives that hit us and it breaks us down. Right? And, Everybody is battling some type of thing, and it's not always easy to find light at the 
I don't even want to say the end of the tunnel. I'm going to say in the tunnel, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but there is ways to be hopeful and to kind of navigate through it. Walk me through those next couple of years for you, because, you know, when you were telling me about your story months, months, months back and read about it, man, it, it, the feeling it made me feel was one of those ones where it's like, man, you don't know how strong you can be until you're forced to be that. So walk me through those next couple months and, and years for you through your eyes. I, and I love that you brought up that quote. There's always light at the tunnel. You just need to know where to look, which I believe is, is your quote. And that was something that we talked about a few months ago because I had found your quote in one of my notebooks from the early years when I was first ill. I didn't wow. know you at the time. Yeah. For seeing you race, I cheered you on when you were in Rio. And so for us to meet in person and to have this conversation now, and rediscover that quote that helped me through that time wow. was uh, wow. such a synchronicity. Um, you're absolutely right. We don't we don't know how strong we are, and sometimes not knowing what we're about to embark into can be a great thing. Because if someone had told me what the next few years, or in my case, it was about six and a half years, what that journey would look like, uh, I'm sure that I would not have thought I could make it through. And I, my family, I really took it day by day, mm. always tried to believe that things would get better, but things did not get better. Or I should say some things, some things did. We were so focused on the bone disease and um, I did make an amazing recovery from it. Um, it took about a full year before I could start using my right hand again. And um, I, fully recovered from this disease as well yes. too. It's not something that I even think about now. But the rest of my body was deteriorating during that time. And when we look back into early years when I was training, I can now see the pattern, what was happening. And it was like the diagnosis for the bone disease was the catalyst for everything to implode. Hmm. And so as I was healing and starting to think about returning to the circus, how I begin training, looking for jobs, that's when the rest of me started to become sicker and all the systems in my body started to break down. And it was little by little too. So we were trying to address one thing and then there would be something else. And it felt like we had all these puzzle pieces and couldn't put them together. Gradually, I became so sick that I was completely bedridden. Most days just struggling to even lift my head off the pillow or to hold a spoon to be able to eat. Wow. Some days walking the few steps to the bathroom or brushing my teeth would be too exhausting. This was about three, three years into me being ill. So I had been in bed before, but we always found some sort of a treatment that gave me a bit more energy, felt like things were finally starting to heal. And then I'd go and do some things and then I'd crash again. And it was a series of repeated crashes until the big one. And I feel now that I would never have fully healed if I didn't, if I wasn't completely stopped in my tracks. Wow. Because I guess as an athlete or as somebody who was always trying to figure out a way, I always did that. I was so creative. I thought I can exercise while lying down. Even when I was in bed, I'd, I was thinking, oh, I can work my abdominal muscles. But eventually I got to the point where that was just not possible anymore. And, um, 
I had gone to so many doctors. We tried countless treatments. We ran every test that we could think of. My parents were awake countless nights trying to research what other options there were for me and trying to get a diagnosis. And it eventually got to the point where I was not able to even go into a doctor's office anymore. I, I was in a wheelchair and then, and then it just, I couldn't be out of bed. I couldn't be in a car. So I was completely at wow. home and um, we had a nurse come to the home to do blood tests and things like that for me. But it was so hard hearing doctors not know what was wrong with me or even in some cases not being believed. Yeah. Um, because I, I knew, I knew that there was something wrong. I knew that it wasn't just in my mind, but I also knew that the mental aspect was a part of it. And there are a lot of insecurities and doubts and demons that I would face over the next few years. And when I was in bed, and I really believe that that time was such a good thing for me because I couldn't be on my computer or my phone very much. So I wasn't able to Google things anymore. <laughs> Yeah, and, ask and and trying to always look elsewhere for answers to start listening to myself and trying to figure out what is my body telling me and there was a lot and as athletes we often think that we're listening to our bodies but i realize now how often I, in the past i was pushing and telling mm. my body what it needed to do and i thought because i was able to control what my body could do that that was listening and it, it really wasn't I saw uh, a photo, Tatiana, um, of you. I think you were you were outside. The sun was beaming, and and it looked great outside in Calgary. It looked great, fantastic. <laughs> but you had like a towel over your eyes, right? Yes. How did you not break and give up? Because you had all reasons to. But like, what gave you the strength to keep fighting and to keep? living yeah I, I know that photo perfectly well um, i was light sensitive also sound sensitive um, sensitive to touch and then pretty much every kind of food so, so mm. everything was compromised and you know we're always told how good sunshine is for us but it's hard when you physically can't tolerate it. even though the sun on my skin would make me itchy would make my skin break out and that day in particular, I think my parents had carried me outside just to try and get some vitamin D and some fresh air. But I, I remember having the sunglasses on, having the, the towel over, over my head. Um, I, think, I think I've just had such tremendous support from my family. I talked about hope before and one thing that my, my family and my fiance at the time, especially my mom, they never let me go to sleep each night without hope for the next day. Wow. And we, wow. we exhausted what seemed like every possibility. It's countless nights where I felt heartbroken thinking, well, this is just another treatment or possibility off the list that we, we need to cross out. It didn't work or it made me worse. And it got to the point where it felt like there was nothing left or I was so hesitant to even want to try something because I knew that there was a big chance that, I, that it wouldn't work and that I'd be disappointed again. I think that having that combined with the mindset from sport, as damaging as sport can be 
all of us athletes have this drive when you're in bed, when you're recovering from an injury, that we come back from impossible things. And I spent a lot of time in bed visualizing, and I would actually visualize that that we watched. Yeah. My last performance, and I moved through all the moments. I started to see myself being able to do that again, but eventually I had to bring it back to reality, which was I wasn't walking at the time, so that was my next goal, mm. to be able to walk again. Um, but I had to go through a number of, of treatments first to try and get everything in my body functioning and uh, I was exhausted at the time. Uh, I feel like exhausted isn't even a good good word to describe what it was. Um, yeah. yeah as, as athletes, we think we know exhaustion. I certainly felt that before, but this was on a whole other level where um, the way I would describe it to people, it's like your phone will only charge to 5% every day. So you're always in that red zone and you're trying to make choices of how to use that energy. and that energy would be used to um, one task, like brushing my teeth, or if I'm going to go to the bathroom, or if I'm going to have a short two-minute conversation with somebody. Even thoughts would be exhausting. I had to be so careful and deliberate with everything that I did. But um, I always had reason to believe that we would get through this, and I held on to other people's stories during this time. And they may not have had exactly what I had, but they had gotten through something that doctors said was impossible or that the prognosis was not good. And they had found a way to get through it and return to life with a completely different outlook. And those were the seeds of hope for me when I was lying in bed and trying to think how I'd make it through this. Wow. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Got a couple more questions for you, Tatiana. That that was support. Um, your family, yes. absolutely. You know, they they uh, uh, uh they kind of stuck with you forever. Yes. But your your fiance. People talk about marriage, and it's always um till death do us part through sickness and in health. It says it all the time. But you guys had to deal with that a little bit before that. Yes. What was it like for you both during those times? It was so difficult. We, when we had met, I was already ill at the time, but I could make an outing, for example. And, and a lot of people, even friends too, they'd only see me when I was able to go out. They didn't see the time when I'd get home, I'd go right into bed, I'd sleep the next few days. I have to save all my energy just for one thing. And a, a lot of people who, who suffer in the way that I have, they say the same thing. Nobody quite understands unless you're there all the time. And it wasn't long after we met that I started um, becoming quite ill. And uh, eventually I was completely in bed and he would come to visit. And, you know, he stayed with me this whole time, even though we didn't know if I would ever get better. And wow. He he said even when I was lying in bed that, that was enough wow. for him just to be able to spend time with wow. me and that kind of patience, but also belief and trust too, because we didn't know what the rest of our lives would look like. And then COVID hit, and so he wasn't even able to visit anymore. And um, I know my mom's got a picture of this somewhere where it's snowing and he's 
sitting outside my open window on a bench with all his his snow gear on and wow. my mom had made lunch for both of us and so i'm eating inside and wow. he's sitting outside in the Come cold. On, he's, he's trying to make me emotional <laughs> over here wow that's beautiful that's beautiful and i don't think we were able to hug for it was probably six or seven months despite us being in the same city but we were so nervous about my immune system and we didn't know very much about COVID at the time and i was finally starting to have some success with my treatments so i was i was getting better we didn't want anything to jeopardize that too but when we were able to have that first hug and for it to be a real hug too because like i said i was very sensitive to any touch so even um he, he would wash my hair for me when he'd visit which was about once a week because i couldn't tolerate more than that it was like i'd say one visit of the week and that would be for him and he'd wash my hair for me it was much shorter than it is now and for him to comb my hair would take an hour because any little pull it's like my body was so sensitive to every little bit of touch when everything felt too much so he, he would take his time Wow. slowly going through too and that's you know when i think of uh his strength i think of that too and my my mom was my primary caregiver along along with my dad who's supporting us and my husband had to be patient during that time and be okay with only seeing me once a week which i think was very difficult for him to not feeling like he could be here all the time with me and helping in the way that he wanted to help man that 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 is love. <laughs> I'm saying that. <laughs> that is love. Um, two more questions for you, Tatiana. N you've made the, the the recovery. Things are going well, moving well. You're speaking. Uh, you're coaching. Um, I want to ask you about this quote that I read on your website. Um, it said, "Healing does not mean going back to the way things were before." What you're doing now. How did you take what you went through and not carry the anger, maybe bitterness that you should have had, um, and still find the joy and the light in the moment now? How does one make that transition from being bedridden, you're, 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 you're being hopeful, but you're also a realist, all right? Then you yeah. get better, and then now you still have to figure out the dream is a little bit altered. It's not the same thing. Yes. So now you have to see things in a different light, pick yourself up and continue moving forward. It's easier said than done. But how did you start that into what you're doing now? And I really love that because I want to read it again. It says, healing does not mean going back to the way things were before. Unpack that for me because uh, that's a lot of depth and volume to that one. When everything happened after I graduated, I had seen a card with that quote on the inside. And the card, there was something about the quote that intrigued me. And there was also something about the quote that I didn't like. Because when the first few years when I was ill and in bed, I, I envisioned myself going back. And sometimes my mom would say to me, why would you want to put yourself through what you did and that? You know, that wasn't healthy for you. There was so much stress. And there was a part of me that was so stubborn. I thought, of course, I'm, I'm going to do that exactly again. It's like I needed to prove something. I don't know what exactly, but I had something to prove. 
kept thinking I'm going to go back and I'm going to be stronger than I ever was before. And the first five years I was ill, uh, the circus completely consumed me still. That was exactly what I was going to go back to. And then as I was making my recovery and I was relearning how to walk at the time and I started to, to learn how joy in very simple things in life that I think many of us take for granted, like putting our feet on the floor in the yeah, morning. That was definitely. a whole new sensation for me. I didn't wear shoes for about a year. And so being able to swing my legs out of the bed and going outside for the first time without sunglasses on, feeling the, the warmth of the sun without feeling like I was reacting to it. Those were such gifts. And I started to realize that it's these little moments in life, but those are the things that we live for. Mm. And that life, it's not about dreams coming true. It's, it's actually about everything that surrounds that dream and, and transformation. That's yeah. what we should be aiming for in life. And that's also when I started to see this quote in a new light and start to realize it's about taking everything that I've learned and gone through and creating something new with it instead of trying to go back and find these doors that I had gone through before. In the past, I thought the quote meant that I could never reach the level I was at before. Mm. And now I see it as it's about possibilities and opening your mind to all that you can do when you have a very narrow mindset, which a lot of us do as athletes or when we have a dream the, the focus that's required for that and the termination, I think, is very admirable, but it can also make us miss out on a lot of opportunities and possibilities yeah. that could actually lead us to a place that we're meant to be. And it might not be that finish line or that dream that you'd envisioned for so long, but it might be a place that you're happier in. And I really found that for myself and the just the gratitude that I still have every day. I, I hope to never lose that too, because wow. it's a great feeling to have. And the things that I was anxious about before, those don't even cross my mind. Now, obviously there's bigger worries and I feel everything that's going on in the world and I feel people's struggles, but I also know that I, I can't take that on. I can just do my best to try and help other people and, give them hope for what they're going through. And I think that is more rewarding to me than any performance that I've done in the past. There's a closing tradition on the show here, Tatiana. Uh, my people's always hear from me when it comes to, you know, certain messages. But in this season, uh, I've let the guests come and share what is on their heart for the day because you know, I believe every single day there's a message on all of our hearts. We just don't often share it. But among the great things that you already shared throughout this episode, um, what is a message that you would give to someone who may be battling their tough time in this season of their lives? What is something you would say to help them to keep going? I would tell them that they really need to find a way to listen to their heart and their intuition. We are bombarded every day now by messages, whether it's online or through other people, trying to be helpful and suggest things. And I know for myself, when I was able to finally quiet everything out, up here was still noisy, mm. but I finally just had the time and the space 
to work with what's up here and yeah. to finally make it really good space to be in. And I would say to everybody, if you're able to do that, and you don't need to wait for things to become really bad, start now. And when you're uncomfortable with having those quiet moments, that's a sign that you need to take the time. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be meditation where you're sitting in one spot, not moving. And that can be uncomfortable for some people. Find whatever it is and find a place where you're able to get into a flow in your mind and where you're able to listen because your body's always trying to tell you things all day long. And I think all of us do have intuition, but whether we choose to listen to it or not, that's a whole other matter too. But if you can tap into that, and I really believe it does come through practice and it comes from turning other things off, having quiet time and really listening. You, wow. you might be surprised at what you discover there. Wow, that's a that's a great reminder for us all, Tatiana. Thank you for that. Um, what is the best way for people to keep in touch with you to 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 get in contact if they want to bring you in to speak? What what is the best way? What what platforms work the best for you? So my website, um, which is uh, www.tatianastratoff.com, and maybe you'll link it below. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I have to spell that out. <laughs> Last name is a bit of a challenge for people, but they can find me on my website and the various uh, things that I offer. And um, they can also send me an email through there or my phone number. They can always reach me. I respond to every every email that I get, and I'm happy to help in any way that I can. They can also find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I guess they can also find me through you, too. Yes, I know that you've got, you're always having uh, messages and trying to connect people in a great way that you do. Thank you so much, Tatiana. This uh, this is an episode that people are going to want to listen to a couple of times because. Um, hope is hard to find, especially if you don't know where to look. And so, uh, thank you. I appreciate you and, um, can't wait till this one comes out. Thank you so much. It was such an honor and a deep pleasure to have this conversation with you today. I really enjoyed it.